You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com, and you can keep up with the show on Instagram at wellfedwomen. Welcome to the Well-Fed Women podcast. This is episode number 355. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr of coconutsandkettlebells.com. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner and a National Strength and Conditioning Association certified personal trainer. If you are here with me live, happy holidays. I hope you're able to take some time over this week and next week just to rest and relax and enjoy the people that you are with. I know that this is historically a crazy time. You know, we're wrapping presents. We're trying to get a lot done. We we have a lot of plans. We have breakfast with Santa. We have maybe some parties and some things going on. But I have really just recently found the value in not buying into the craziness and being able to say no. So I hope that you're able to say no out of self-care and just out of being able to know what you can take and what you can't and being able to stand up for living a less stressed life, taking things that you know are going to cause your body more stress and more harm and removing them because you do have that control and you have that power and you have that knowledge. So I hope that you're able to do that this year. Um, we've had just some some crazy and incredible years the past few years. And I think that it's really given all of us an opportunity to take a step back and and evaluate what's really important to us and how we can better take care of ourselves. And as you do that, this episode is a great resource. This is actually one of my favorite episodes of the Well-Fed Women podcast. And it's actually one that I have gone back. I've told myself many times, I need to listen to that episode again. (laughs) Like, that was so insightful. So this episode originally aired a year and a half ago. It's with Lisa Hendrickson-Jack. And we're in this episode, we talk all about how to track your cycles to improve your health and balance your hormones. So she gives a ton of information about how to properly track your cycle, but also what these variances in your cycle actually mean. What does it mean when you're ovulating early or ovulating late? What does it mean when we have a shorter luteal phase and and how to decipher, you know, how to move forward with take that information that your body is giving you through this very vibrant vital sign and that is your cycle and improve your health or make changes or or gain and gather knowledge and be able to move forward with that. So I'm so excited to share this episode with you again. Take it and study it and make some notes and also follow her. She's a tremendous resource for women who are cycling and who have hormones. So I hope you enjoy it. Before we dive into her episode, Winter aka sixth season, is upon us. And we all know this is the time of year to take extra care to protect yourself from viruses and bacteria. And you can, you you guys know this, you can do everything right. You can wash your hands, you can keep your hands away from your face, you can carry around the hand sanitizer, but you still can get sick. And that is why 
It's so important to protect your body from the inside out by building up your immune system with a high-quality probiotic like Bioptimizer's P3OM. Taking care of your gut isn't just about your digestion. I think a lot of people think gut health means I am trying to improve my digestion. But your gut is where your immune system lives, and your gut plays such an important role in the ability to fight off viruses and keep pathogenic bacteria at bay. P3OM is actually one of the probiotics that I take and rotate, especially during the winter. It is a proteolytic probiotic, meaning it's really good at breaking down protein, and it's proven to be maintainable in the human digestive tract. And there's actually a video. I've just thought about it. P3OM.com slash wellfed. I think it's there. You can actually see the probiotic breaking down a piece of steak because it is that good at breaking down protein. And here's some awesome news. You can actually get 10% off P3OM right now by going to P3OM.com slash wellfed. Use our coupon code wellfed10 for that 10% off. And if you order it and it's not everything you hoped for, their support team will give you all your money back, no questions asked, which I think is awesome. So if you want to protect yourself this year and take your digestion to a new level, visit P3, the letter O, M, dot com forward slash W-E-L-L-F-E-D and get a 10% discount with that coupon code WELLFED10. Now let's get into the interview. Let me introduce Lisa. Lisa Hendrickson-Jack is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles for natural birth control, conception, and monitoring overall health. She is the author of the best-selling book, The Fifth Vital Sign, which provides an evidence-based approach to fertility awareness and menstrual cycle optimization. I'm excited. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, she also is the host of the Fertility Friday podcast, which I know a lot of you listen to, where she talks all about the menstrual cycle, fertility, and women's health. Welcome, Lisa. I'm I'm so honored to have you joining me over here on the Well-Fed Women podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Yeah. It's, I love doing mashups, and I love having super educated people like yourself on because I'm going to be honest, I have all my own personal questions that I'm going to be asking. And I also, of course. And I also know, <laughs> this is just me, you know, doing what I love to do and, and helping myself out. But also I have a lot of people um, who have a lot of questions about how to track your cycle, specifically when, you know, you have a lot of, you may have irregularities or you're breastfeeding. So before we get into um, everybody's questions, I, I really love the concept you have developed, and that is that women have this fifth vital sign in our cycles. It, it's not just something that happens a few days of the month randomly when we get our period. We can learn so much from our cycle when it comes to our own health. And unfortunately, there's just very little formal education about the menstrual cycle, which I know you're really passionate about. But I'm, I'm curious to know, what was your first experience learning about the importance of the cycle? And when did it occur to you like, wow, this is legitimately our, our fifth vital sign as women? Well, that is a great question. Uh, I would say I had, I mean, it's it's certainly been a journey, but 
my first experience with my actual period, my periods were really heavy and painful. And so, and I was also quite the athlete, you know, not saying that I was necessarily any good, but I certainly was very active in high school. So I was, you know, basketball, volleyball, track and field, all the things. And having a super heavy, painful period didn't help that. And so, you know, one of the first things I did was I went to my doctor and at that age, that's all I knew. So I basically said three words. He was writing a prescription for the pill and it was like magic. You know, all of a sudden my pill periods were super light and manageable. And I actually remember thinking, you know, oh, this is great. I'm fixed. And then I would (laughs) so I just, you know, I wasn't using it for birth control. So I would kind of come off of it and see if it was like if my real periods were better. And what happened was every time I came off of the pill, my actual periods were still super painful, super heavy. And sometimes it felt like they were even worse. And maybe it was just because the pill periods were a bit more manageable. And so from an early age, then this experience led me to like, I didn't have the words or the understanding that I have now. But I had a clear, you know, example in my body that whatever the pill was doing, it wasn't actually fixing the problem. It was certainly helping it while I was taking it, but it wasn't actually fixing like it not it didn't fix it so that I could come off of it and be normal. And so that kind of was uh, like a thread that kind of went through. And when I actually needed birth control, I then decided that I was going to use condoms because I did have a feeling. And I guess you could just say it was an intuitive feeling, but I had this feeling that it shouldn't be like that. Like I didn't actually think that it should be so painful. Like I'd be on the floor. I've now had two children and I can tell you that the first half of labor was not as bad as the period pain. Uh, So that's, you know, speaks volumes of how ridiculous it was. And so it was right around this time that I was making these decisions and trying to decide how I was going to manage my fertility that I discovered fertility awareness. And so I discovered that you're not fertile every single day and you can actually track your cervical fluid, your basal body temperature, cervical position to figure out when you're fertile and use that for birth control. So it was like a match made in heaven. You know, I was like, this, it blew my mind. And I was like, sweet, this works. And so when I started tracking, my cycles weren't, they still weren't totally normal. So I still had the pain, I was still figuring that out. And my cycles were actually really long. So they were, on average, about 38 days in length. But at the time, I didn't know that that was a problem. I was like, you know, oh, I was going through this post high school feminist phase. So I was like, oh, I'm Lisa. I've got long cycles. That's totally okay. Right. And yeah. so fortunately for me, I was learning to chart around a group of women who knew a lot more than me, some of whom were certified educators, some of whom were training to be educators. Um, you know, on my university campus, there was this group that met every month. So I always say it was, it was obviously meant to be because that's not a normal (laughs) experience that most women have. But anyway, so my charting instructor looked at my charts and she was like, Lisa, your temperatures are too low. Your cycles are too long. You need to go get your thyroid tested. And that Mm. kind of event, that, that moment, that was a huge, huge part of even to this day what I do, because that was the moment when it really, I realized, because I had no idea, you know, I just thought my cycles were long kind of for no reason. But when I did go to the doctor and I did get my thyroid tested and I did have a thyroid issue. And so it just blew my mind that someone could look at my chart. And obviously you can't just diagnose someone by staring at it, but you can gain that information to let you know where you should be looking. And so that is really part of my journey. And so when I, you know, in my early twenties, I took a training program and I started teaching women to chart and then I, you know, furthered my education later on so that I could be more in depth in terms of supporting women to uh, improve their menstrual cycle health. But this is really how 
I learned. And through the whole process of my training, that was one of the fundamental pieces of it, that the menstrual cycle is not just about having babies. It's a, a vital sign because when you're a woman of reproductive age, if you're if you have issues with your cycle that are consistent, it is a sign of an underlying issue, kind of whether you know it or not. Wow. I I'm in awe that you had access to somebody who was able to look at your cycle and tell you this is a indicator that you might have a thyroid issue. You need to go get your thyroid tested just by looking at what you were tracking and what the information you were gaining from your cycle. And something that you said is really important. Most people don't know that you aren't fertile every single day of your cycle. And in fact, people who are doctors will actually say, no, that's not true. You are. You're definitely fertile every day of your cycle. And so we have this huge misconception. We don't understand it until we really do look for like like we're interested in getting pregnant. Um, so talk to me a little bit about what a normal cycle looks like. Like what what are are there? definite parameters? um, Or is it different for everyone? Like, how does somebody know they have a healthy menstrual cycle? Well, I mean, that's a great question, because certainly there are, you know, some degree of individual differences from person to person. But there is what I would say, a, a, a parameter of what we would consider normal. And it's interesting, because when I talk about this, or when I ask somebody, you know, what's your menstrual cycle like, often they'll tell me what their period is like. Mm -hmm. So, you know, first things first, your menstrual cycle is the whole thing. It starts when you have your first day of your period, and it goes until the day before your next one. So when we're looking at the parameters of a healthy menstrual cycle, we're actually looking, well, from my perspective, we're actually looking at all of the different pieces. So um, if I take you through the menstrual cycle, generally speaking, first of all, although you know, the average cycle length is about 28 to 29 days. Your cycle doesn't have to be 28 days to be normal. And most women don't have 28 day cycles just on re repeat over and over again. And that's really important because a lot of women maybe have like a 27 day cycle or a 32 day cycle or something like that. And they'll assume that that, that means that there's something wrong. So a healthy cycle can be anywhere from about 24 to 35 days in length. And, I, you know, we could always say that maybe a more functional range would be, say, 27 to 32. But it's important to know that your cycle can be 35 days and normal, um, although that is a bit on the, the edge. But it's helpful to know that it's not always 28 days. And so if I take you through the cycle, you know, the first day of the cycle, like I mentioned, it's the first day of your true bleed. So when you actually need need to do something, uh, whether it's, you know, use a tampon or pad or something, because some women will have some spotting before their period starts. So it's the first day of true flow and a period, uh, a healthy period lasts anywhere from about three to seven days. So four to five is about average. And typically it's going to start, you know, moderate to heavy and have like a you know, decrescendo pattern. So it's, you're typically losing the vast majority of your overall bleeding within the first two to three days, and then it tapers off. And so what I always say about the period is a period should be like a sentence. It should have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then stop. <laughs> and so <laughs> if, if it keeps going, if, if it lasts 10 days or 15 days, if you have random bleeding throughout the cycle, then that's something that you should be aware of that, you know, it's not uncommon for women to experience a little bit of spotting, maybe around ovulation or uh, a few days of spotting before their period. But just so that you know, that's not optimal, let's say. So uh, common and normal aren't always the same thing. Mm. And one, you know, I could talk a bit more about the period. I mean, uh, but one of the things I would say uh, right off the bat is that although pain is really common and a lot of women experience moderate to severe pain, like I did, it's not 
healthy. And if you think about it, you know, when is there, what other situation can you think of that having moderate to severe pain on a regular basis is considered to be normal? Uh, you know, if you imagine any, any man in your life, father, brother, cousin, friend, uh, if he had moderate to severe pain in his penis every month for a couple of days, such that he couldn't get off the couch, you know, would we think that that's normal, mm-hmm. right? So uh, I think that's just something important to say so that uh, at least the women who are listening can hear that from somebody because I feel like a lot of us haven't. And in my programs, this is brought to my attention on a regular basis because I'll have women who have like pretty bad pain, but they don't even bring it up unless I ask for it. I have to put it in my forms. I have to specifically kind of seek it out because they're so used to experiencing this that they've just, you know, it's like they've just... uh resolved like oh this is just normal and so so yeah we don't have to go deep into that but I just want to say that so moving on from the period then uh, generally speaking to take you through the cycle what is normal and healthy is that after your period stops there's typically a few days before we start to see cervical fluid so for anyone who's not familiar with cervical fluid it can look like creamy white hand lotion it can look like clear stretchy raw egg whites uh, you might notice that, you know, there's a couple days of your cycle when you go to the bathroom and you wipe and it's super slippery, super lubricative, or you just feel really wet down there for a couple days of the cycle. So now you know what that is. And so, you know, in a healthy cycle, you would expect to see anywhere from about two to seven days of this cervical fluid and it would lead to ovulation and then you would ovulate. And then after ovulation, you would expect about 12 to 14 days between ovulation and your period. So you can't, predict when you ovulate because ovulation can vary. So I mentioned, you know, the cycle variation about 24 to 35 days is normal. So that could mean that ovulation could happen as early as day 10, you know, as late as day 23. Now that's not like hard and fast rule, but just to give you a sense that ovulation does vary in the cycle. But the second half between ovulation and your period is pretty stable. So what you can do is you can predict your period when you have this level of understanding. Mm. So the luteal phase will always be 12 to 14 days is what you're saying. Well, I, I would never say always, uh, but I would say it's fairly consistent. So I'll give you a couple of examples. For example, if a woman comes off of the birth control pill, it's pretty typical uh, that there's a transition phase that she'll go through. So the first several cycles, her luteal phase is likely not going to be 12 to 14 days. So it can be seven days or eight days, but that's not healthy. Uh, so it, it, there is a little bit of fluctuation. The amount of fluctuation is narrower. So the, the, the amount that it would fluctuate from cycle to cycle. But when you're healthy and your cycle is pretty consistent, you would expect that luteal phase to vary maybe like a day or two from cycle to cycle. Got it. Okay. So what are the four phases of the menstrual cycle? And I think you've answered really well why we should be tracking cycles, but maybe then let's go into the nitty gritty of it and like what we can learn from that information. Like when we are actually, once we are figuring out, okay, what are those four phases of the menstrual cycle? Like why is it important? What's the why behind it? Why should we know that? (laughs) Well, I mean, so, you know, the four phases, you can divide it into the menstrual phase. So when you're actually bleeding, Mm -hmm. the pre-ovulatory phase. So that's the period of time, you know, once you're finished bleeding and you're approaching ovulation, you could have then the ovulatory phase. So that's around the time of ovulation and then the post-ovulatory luteal phase. So that would be, um, you know, the period of time between ovulation and, and your next period. And so, you know, it's helpful. One of the analogies 
that I talk about in the fifth vital sign that a lot of women are really gravitating to is comparing the cycles of the menstrual cycle to the cycles of uh, of the year, like the seasons of the year, I guess I should say. So the menstrual phase would be like your winter. Uh, and then the pre-ovulatory phase would be like the spring. And then ovulation is the summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, the post-ovulatory phase is the fall. And for any any woman who's listening who has experienced men- menstrual cycles regularly, you kind of know that you don't feel like the same every day. (laughs) You go through different emotional and energetic changes. And so, of course, every woman is not the same. Everybody does not experience this in the same way, but there's general themes. And so many women find that uh, during the spring, if you will, the pre-ovulatory and the summer, you that can be a time of increased creativity and energy. You may feel a bit more outgoing. And, you know, I, I, I recently did a really interesting interview uh, with a woman who talked about exercise and how you can modify your exercise based on your, you know, where you are in the cycle. And she mentioned that, you know, there's certain changes that would lend itself to having more energy and maybe doing more intense exercises during that first half of the cycle mm-hmm. uh, because your body can kind of handle it more. Whereas when you think about what fall is, so post-ovulatory, that's kind of like the winding down. And the week before your period starts, I mean, that's if you're going to have PMS, that's when you're going to have it because <laughs> because this is the time when your hormones are changing. Um, there's a significant shift in the, the hormones, but also our energetic, um, like literally the energy, but also how we feel. Uh, so the fall and the winter, so that's a time when many women may find that they feel less outgoing. They feel less like, you know, have less energy to do all the things. Mm-hmm. And certainly during your period, the winter is often when we want to kind of hibernate and relax. And so, you know, anybody can do whatever they want. So if someone wants to run a marathon, you know, when they're actively bleeding, you know, have at her. But me personally, after you know, having this experience of menstruating for, you know, over two decades uh, without hormones and being, you know, in tune with what's happening. I certainly wouldn't choose that, not because I couldn't do it, but because that's a natural time of kind of rest and actively bleeding, maybe not the best time to totally overdo it with the exercise because you just make the bleeding worse. Yeah, I love that analogy. I love the analogy of the phases being much like the seasons because it gives a great visual of Ooh, yeah, it's kind of cold outside and I'm just feeling a little bit more sluggish and I want to be in my sweatpants inside by the fire. And the summer, we have the sunshine and we got more en- we get more energy from the sun. We get more energy from that light and it's warm and we want to be outside and with the flowers, you know. And so I think that gives a beautiful visual of these different phases and why it is important to kind of go with that flow. We need that change, you know, and we need to kind of adapt to that change. Um so I love that. Well, and I'd even I'd even kind of uh, kind of play with an idea around it because we live in a world where it's very male. Uh, even when you were talking about the medical system and how, you know, why is it that we're not taught about our cycles? How is it the doctors don't know that women are, you know, how is it that this isn't taught in med school type of thing? Well, the medical system, the science is study, science and medicine represent the study of the male body. And our world is constructed based on kind of the male cycle male you know the circadian daily mm-hmm. kind of you know 24 hour mm-hmm. clock situation and that really gives us the impression that we're supposed to have about the same level of productivity every single day and so we are often very hard on ourselves if there are a few days of the cycle where we don't really feel like it we just want to relax we kind of even though our body is saying relax like sit yourself down <laughs> uh, i don't feel like doing this today 
Uh, and it's for, for many, it's cyclical. You kind of fight it and force yourself to do it or feel bad about feeling that way. And so understanding how this cyclical process goes, and I'm not saying I have it perfect, because certainly there's some days that I really want to be productive. And I just, you know, so I still deal with this as well. But one of the things that this framing it this way can do is give you permission to actually allow that cyclical nature, allow yourself to be more productive, put more on your plate at a certain time of the cycle, put less on your plate at a, a at the other time of your cycle and think about it in terms of like, what can I accomplish over the course of a cycle as opposed to beating yourself up if any given day you're not really as productive? Yes. Yes. Our society fights fluctuations. We fight. We're not allowed to fluctuate in our weight where, you know, we're supposed to be super productive every day. And the graph of our productivity or the graph of our success should always, always be rising. We should always be peaking, you know, um, and going for that next level and pushing through it and, you know, drive, drive, drive. And so many women, I think, especially are drowning, especially in 2020, because we do we don't recognize that or we're, we're not taught um, it's not acceptable in society that fluctuations are very normal. It's OK to fluctuate both your diet and your exercise and your weight like all that's totally fine. And we have this fluctuating um, thing uh basically monthly calendar that where we have we can if we go with that flow we're not going to be fighting our body we're going to be riding the flow and and moving with it and in sync with it um i love that i was getting i was getting a little little chills when you're talking because i just feel like that message is so empowering and it's so needed especially this year so let's get into the nitty-gritty of it for tracking you've mentioned the temperatures you've mentioned cervical fluid or cervical mucus what exactly is needed to track your menstrual cycle and how do you do it? Do you need fancy equipment or apps or is this something that somebody can just kind of use or do with visual cues? Uh, well, I mean, that's a great question. The answer would really depend on on the woman. So it absolutely is possible to, you know, track your cycles and pay attention to these signs with very minimal or no tech. I mean, uh, so to track your cervical fluid, you need toilet paper. <laughs> uh, or not. I mean, I, I teach my clients to, ch- to do external checking. That's what it's called when you actually kind of purposely wipe with toilet paper uh, your vulva and actually, you know, pay attention to the sensation, take a look to see if there's anything there. And so what I always say is, you know, every woman who's listening right now, you know, has gone to the bathroom at least a couple times today and will continue to for the rest of the day. So it's literally doing something that you're doing anyways, wiping yourself, but paying attention to what you see, if there's anything there, that type of thing. And so, you know, certainly doing that every day can seem like a lot of work, but I always say like, did you brush your teeth this morning? You know, are you going to brush your teeth tonight? If <laughs> Did you do it yesterday too? So if, if you can handle that, you can handle uh, charting. And one thing I'll say as well, uh, as we go into this is that the great thing about charting is that there's no woman alive who charts her menstrual cycles who uh, was forced to do so. So this is a method that women self-select to. So, uh, you know, for for those who choose to do this, it's not something that's like, oh, I have to check my cervical fluid again. It's it's <laughs> usually really exciting because they're really into it and that's why they're doing it. So just as a little side note there. Uh, so in terms of cervical fluid, uh, that's one of the main signs because cervical fluid helps you identify when you're fertile. And the reason for that 
is because when you have cervical fluids, I mentioned the creamy white hand lotion or clear, stretchy kind of raw egg white consistency or just like a slippery type of feel when you're wiping yourself, uh, that is when sperm can survive in your body for up to five days. So when you're approaching ovulation and you see your fluid, it's all like gushy and wonderful down there, juicy. Um, that is when pregnancy is possible. Um, you can't, there's only one day where ovulation happens in the cycle. So, you know, technically there's only one day when pregnancy could occur, but, uh, our cervical fluid extends that one day window to, you know, a total of from a scientific perspective, six days of the cycle where pregnancy is possible. So what it means is, you know, if you see cervical fluid on Monday and you had sex on Monday, you could actually ovulate on Friday and you could get pregnant on Friday because of the sex you had on Monday, because the, the cervical fluid keeps the sperm alive. So if there's one thing you take away from today's episode, it's that cervical fluid is actually really awesome. It's key to understanding your fertility. If you're trying to get pregnant, it's really helpful and important to to know that because that's what helps you to time correctly. And if you're avoiding pregnancy, that gives you kind of like the first step of like, no, this is what you need to know. (laughs) This is when (laughs) um, babies happen. Uh, So in terms of tracking, it's literally checking it. Uh, I recommend throughout the day, every day, and then making sure that you kind of decide how you're going to track it. So certainly uh, there's a lot of apps. When I started tracking my cycles back in like circa 2000, some while ago. (laughs) Um, But when I started tracking, there were no apps. Uh, I I don't even, like my cell phone had a green screen. There were no, yeah, this wasn't a thing. So I used it for calling people. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Back in the day when (laughs) cell phones were for calling people. That's so funny because it's true. I'm old, apparently. Um, But yeah, so back in the day, I actually created like an Excel spreadsheet, printed them off. And I made I fully made books for my friends. And like it was a thing. And like I was I was just like this back then, just Mm -hmm. with less tech. Um, But that's one way to do it. Certainly you can track on paper. And I actually have created a charting workbook because surprisingly, even though we're, you know, two decades later, there's a pretty significant percentage of women who still like to track on paper. So most don't, but there's like, there's still a good amount, but there's tons of apps. My recommendation for someone who actually wants to use fertility awareness and kind of really get into it is to choose an app that allows you to turn off the prediction settings because all of these modern apps, or I'm pretty sure all of them, but I would let me say the vast majority do have algorithms and, and programming, and it will then predict your fertile window. And when you're actually trying to learn how to understand your cycles, it can be confusing because if your body is doing something and the app is telling you something else, which happens pretty consistently, then you're going to get confused. So that would be my suggestion. But of course, everyone's going to do what they're comfortable with. But you don't need a fancy like, you know, you can get free app, uh, you can get a a paid app, but uh, you can get a piece of paper, (laughs) you can get a charting book. Uh, And then in terms of the temperature, you just need a thermometer. So you can get a $20 thermometer to um, you need a thermometer that goes to at least one decimal point. Most of these modern thermometers have two decimal points, but you could actually have one that goes to one. So like 97.1 or 97.12. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's it. But of course there's thermometers that are $20. There's recording devices that are $300 and $400. And so it it really comes up to you and what you want. There are plenty of, of, you know, women who are charting their cycles who actually really love investing in the tech, you know, investing in a fancy thermometer, investing in more of a device, because then it's like, 
you know what I mean? Like it's kind of like you're starting something for someone who really appreciates the tech and wants yes. it to sync to their phone and stuff. So I would say that's individual, but you certainly don't need to spend like a hundred dollars on a thermometer, but you can. Right. Right. And the and so back in the day when I was charting more closely, um, I actually got like a basal body like temperature thing that did have the two decimals and it takes like this is going to sound so diva but it takes like a full minute to get your temperature <laughs> because it's it's trying to be very very accurate whereas nowadays you know as a parent you look for a thermometer that gets it in like three seconds because you don't want to have to hold it you know make your kid hold it cold hold the thermometer in their mouth that long but um and it i mean it works great and i don't it was like 15 bucks 12 15 bucks and i you know it it works great so but i i do see how um you know, if you wanted the more of the tech, then that's fine. And it also sometimes people need that little bit of investment to hold them accountable and to actually do it. <laughs> well, and even um, sometimes when your partner sees like, whoa, you spent $100 on a thermometer, it's like, this is a real thing. And I, I yeah. know some of my clients, when they, you know, they invest in a class, and then I send them all this material. And then I remember one of my clients, she's like, my partner, he was like, you know, you're meeting her again, like this. <laughs> you can be like always on the computer with her, and she's like, "Yeah, this is like a real thing. We're doing this. <laughs> this is happening." Um, okay, so temperature taking. When do you do it, and how is it just once a day, or how does that work? Well, I'll throw a wrench into something that you said because you mentioned that the newer thermometers will give the reading within, you know, a couple of seconds, and yeah. then, you know, 30 seconds or whatever the case is. So, I mean, my recommendation for taking temperature is to take your temperature first thing in the morning when you get out of bed. And I actually recommend to hold the thermometer in place for 10 minutes. Um, you did hear that right. 10 actual minutes before pushing the button and getting the reading. And there's a reason for that. I mean, I've been doing this for a really long time. And I can still remember the first time I heard that from one of my teachers. And I was like, are you crazy? And but then I did it. And I found that it normalizes the temperatures. So, uh, you know, if you think about this, it just warms it up. Uh, and you can, you know, anyone who's listening, who's like a charter, like, try it out, you know, prove me wrong. So uh, put it put the thermometer in your mouth and like push it. And then it'll give you the reading in 30 seconds and do it in a minute, do it in another minute, do it in another minute. And I bet you'll get at least three different temperatures. And so um, what I find is that that helps to uh, normalize it so the temperatures are easier to read on the chart. That's like a, a pro tip there. Mm. Um, so, I mean, other than that, I know there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion around this temperature. And so there are different methods that uh, there's no one fertility awareness method that everybody agrees on. There are multiple fertility awareness based methods. And so for example, you know, I'm an instructor and I've been certified in a, a specific method and there's a lot of different methods. And so, um, but the way that I, uh, talk about the temperature because there's a lot of like really strict like it has to be the same time every day and yes, da, 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 da. right and so I mean what I always say about fertility awareness is that you know it's going to fit into your life you don't need to squeeze your life into it I mean if, if that's the case then far fewer women would either do it or be successful or do it for the long run and so you know most people do get up around the same time every day like within about two hours or so so I feel like this is not a big deal in general, you know, hmm. just right. Like, I, I feel like I can make that statement. I've been doing this for long enough. Like most people wake up pretty much the same time most of the time and then within two hours. And then on the weekends, they may sleep in a bit. So what I always recommend is 
yeah, like aim if you're able to like to waking up, uh, taking your temperature within about two hours of, you know, around that time is, is, is good. Uh, but you know, if you do stay up late and have to sleep in, I don't think that it's a good idea to say, you know, force yourself to get up at five on a Saturday just for the sake of getting your temperature because sleep is actually more important for your health. What I do recommend is to, you know, note your normal wake up time. And if you do wake up a little earlier or later, just make a point of noting that on your chart. So whether you're doing an app, there's usually, you know, a lot of options. You can actually write down what time you wake up. And the reason that it matters is because if you get up a little earlier or sleep a little later, uh, so earlier your temperature might be a little bit lower. Later, the temperature might be a little bit higher. And so if you're making notes, good notes are kind of like the great equalizer. You don't have to live this perfect life where you get up at 701 every day. Uh, But if you take good notes and just note when you have a sleep disruption or something like that, then you're better able to interpret the chart, you know, at the end of the cycle. Got it. I appreciate you saying that because I do think that that can be one of the things that people get really hung up on is like, well, I'm not going to get up every the same time every day. And I remember in the beginning when I was a bit younger and didn't have kids, you know, I was sort of stressed out about that aspect. So I really appreciate you saying that. So getting your temperatures every day, why are we getting our temperatures and what's that? What's the change that we're looking for? And then what like what I know there's obviously a change during ovulation. Is there a change also when we start our period? Um, well, so with the temperatures, what it's measuring, essentially, it, the basal body temperature measure, measures your resting metabolism. And so basically, if you get a minimum of about five hours of sleep, after you've, your body has been at rest for that period of time, there's kind of like a, a baseline energy expenditure that your body is, is giving off, you could say. And then, you know, every additional hour you sleep, it kind of creeps up a little bit. But what's interesting, uh, and this is where like the science nerds will really appreciate this. What's really interesting is that the temperature shift is based on hormones. And so it's science. It's about the, the actual biology of how our body works. So as you approach ovulation, you're producing significant estrogen. And then once you ovulate, you produce significant progesterone for the remainder of the cycle. And so you don't actually produce progesterone until after ovulation. So if you're not ovulating, you're not really, you're not going to have significant progesterone kind of flowing through your bloodstream. And one of the interesting effects of progesterone, progesterone has a thermogenic effect on the body. So it actually raises the metabolism a bit. And the way I always look at it, it's preparing your body for pregnancy. Mother nature wants you pregnant. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. what this is about. And so it raises this, raises your body temperature. And that's what you're measuring. So when you're taking your temperature, you know, you're waking up, you know, every day, first thing in the morning when you get out of bed, you're, or first thing in the morning before you get out of bed, I should say, you take your temperature. And when you do that and you chart it in your app or on your chart, you'll notice that the pre-ovulatory temperatures, they fluctuate a bit, but after ovulation, the temperatures actually jump and they stay high. And what I always say is that, you know, if you have like a, I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old in the house. So if I were to pull up my chart and show them the temperatures, even they should be able to be like, you know, see that the change was clear and obvious. They might not understand what it means, but they should be able to be like, hey, why are these temperatures higher than those ones? So the shift should be clear and obvious and sustained Hmm. because the shift is not this random thing. It's literally a response to this increased progesterone that has risen your core body temperature. And so what's important to know about the temperature is that it doesn't help you to predict ovulation. The temperature is a retrospective measure. So uh, you don't know 
that like, let's say today I'm ovulating, for example, I think I ovulated yesterday, actually. <laughs> so it's timely, very timely. Um, but, uh, but anyways, so let's say today I'm ovulating. So today I wouldn't necessarily like you, you might have a sense of it. You might have ovulation pain. Like there's lots of things that you can know, you know, if you've been charting for a while. Uh, but let's just say that you wouldn't be able to confirm it on your chart kind of using the rules until you actually see that shift. And so if tomorrow I wake up and my temperature has risen and I see that on my chart and I kind of plot it on the chart, I'm going to then be able to look back and be like, oh, okay, thy temperature rose and it remained high. And so I'm going to say that ovulation happened the day before. Does that make sense? Got it. And do you typically, so like the temperature rises, typically cervical fluid is like kind of tapers off or is not, is not the egg white slippery anymore. And you no longer can get pregnant after that, correct? It's done. Well, so I mentioned the hormonal interplay there. So it's the estrogen that you produce as you approach ovulation that stimulates your cervix to make the cervical fluid that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. And then after ovulation, when you start to produce progesterone, it's the progesterone that dries up the cervical fluid. And instead of having kind of flowing, wonderful, juicy uh, cervical fluid, as we talked about, it fills your cervix with a thick mucus plug. And the plug, uh, you know, it acts like a barrier. Sperm can't swim through it. And it's really interesting when you start to chart your cycles, because you'll see the cervical fluid as you approach ovulation in a typical healthy cycle. And then once you ovulate, you'll see that it dries up and it either completely goes away. Some women might have a little bit left, but it's still a very obvious shift from mucus to not mucus. And then if you take it a step further and, uh, you know, check your cervical position, your cervix changes. So the cervix is the base of the uterus. That's where the baby comes out. But um, if you actually insert your finger into your vagina once a day and check your cervical position throughout your cycle, what you'll find is that around ovulation, the cervix is, it feels different. It feels typically a bit softer. Maybe it's a bit higher. You might feel a bit of an opening. And then after ovulation, it's in a different position, so much typically lower in the vagina, more firm. And then the, you know, the opening is gone, like it feels closed. And so what's, what's interesting about these things, as you mentioned, the temperature, the cervical position and the cervical fluid are all changing around the same time because it's all a response to this natural hormonal cycle that takes place over and over and over again. Hmm. So it, it sounds really incredible when you hear it for the first time. And of course, it's really incredible when you start to chart and you see it for the first time. But after cycle 10, <laughs> cycle 100, you realize this happens cyclically. It's not always exactly the same. It's, you know, there's, we're human beings, we're not robots. But this pattern of, you know, temperature uh, rises, cervical fluid dries up, cervical position changes, um, mood change, like, you know, all the different other kind of secondary effects you can look at. It's cyclical. So it's cycle after cycle after cycle. And to answer your question, um, pregnancy is not possible after you have confirmed ovulation in your cycle. Uh, it, and this goes against everything we were taught. But uh, as I mentioned, after ovulation, the progesterone suppresses cervical fluid production, it closes the cervix, it blocks the cervix with a thick mucus plug. And there is a scientist, Dr. Eric Odeblad, who basically spent like 30 to 50 years studying cervical fluid. And so a lot of the science behind what we understand about cervical fluid, you know, is inspired or comes directly from his work. And so like this means looking under the microscope, categorizing different types of mucus, looking to see if the sperm is able to penetrate. There's all kinds of studies that have been done on this. And so 
it's actually science and it's it's really fascinating. So post ovulation, there's a zero percent chance of a pregnancy, and also there's no egg. So the ovulation only happens on the one day. And if the egg is not fertilized, it disintegrates within 12 to 24 hours and that's it. So there's like no one home. The the, the door is locked. And also your <laughs> vagina is an active sperm killing machine outside of your fertile window in case you didn't know. So uh, the vagina of an adult woman is fairly acidic and for a purpose, that acidity protects us from overgrowth of yeast, bacteria, you know, all, you know, you name it. And uh, so basically what happens outside of that fertile window, particularly in the post-ovulatory phase, is if if you have sex and your partner ejaculates inside of your body, and this is like there's, if you want to use this for a method, you can't just listen to this podcast and go do that. Like you, you got to learn how to do There's rules. There's <laughs> yes. a buffer period. There's, you know, just to put it out there. But once you learn the rules and you understand how this works and you're actually you're properly charting and you're properly confirming ovulation using these signs, doing cross-check all the things, then yeah, if you have sex post-ovulatory after you've confirmed everything, you followed the rules, you've done everything, then the sperm basically just dies because there's nowhere for it to go. The, the vagina is too acidic. There's no cervical fluid there's the the door is locked there's like no there's just nothing going on there's no egg like you're done you're done i love that no one's home (laughs) okay let's jump into a couple of the general questions that now of course i'm sure everybody's like but wait what if so can a woman have a period without ovulating assuming she's not on the pill well she can bleed for sure. Yes. But so you can call bleed it a period. A... Oh, you wouldn't call right? it a period? No, all bleeding isn't a period. So um, what I so I think this distinction is helpful. Uh, a true menstrual period in order to have a like what's considered a true menstrual bleed, ovulation has to happen. So uh, what characterizes a true menstrual period is that you actually ovulate. So as you approach, like I keep talking about the hormones, so but it is what it is. Um, estrogen plays a really important role in building up the uterine lining. So you have your period and that sheds the functional layer of the uterine lining. And then as you approach ovulation, you produce estrogen and that helps to rebuild back this functional layer. And then after ovulation, progesterone actually matures the uterine lining, prepares it for pregnancy, and it, it actually makes the uterine lining receptive to a fertilized egg. So estrogen and progesterone play a crucial role in developing and maturing that uterine lining and preparing it for pregnancy. And so if you ovulate and then, you know, have like a a typical ovulatory cycle and then you're not pregnant at the end of it, so there's no fertilized egg, that is a true menstrual period. Mm -hmm. So if you, it's certainly possible to bleed if you don't ovulate. Um, There's one instance that we refer to as an anovulatory cycle where you don't actually ovulate in the cycle, but you actually have a bleed. And, you know, there's there's reasons for for that. Uh, it can be caused by stress and different things, and and um, it can be uh, certainly triggered. And and you would may not even if you weren't charting your cycle, you may not necessarily know that you didn't ovulate. So if you're tracking your cycle, you can see like there was no temperature shift, the mucus pattern doesn't make sense, that kind of thing. Um, but certainly, it's possible to bleed without having. Um, ovulation. And then there's like spotting and all that other stuff. And then there's the pill, which we don't need to get into. But uh, for the record, the pill, when you're taking hormonal contraceptives, the vast majority of hormonal contraceptives uh, suppress ovulation. And so if you're taking the regular birth control pill and you're bleeding every 28 days, that is not a period, although we may call it that. It's called a withdrawal bleed. And it's triggered by the uh, sudden drop in artificial hormones when you take your sugar pills. Mm. Yep, that's important. Okay. Um, 
This one's from Jennifer. Can can a woman track her cycle if she has irregular periods? Or do you have advice for women when they're tracking and they see this irregularity? Does anything change? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. It's a it's a myth that you can't track your cycles or you can't use fertility awareness if you have irregular cycles, uh, because it's still it's still possible. Uh, first of all, I'd want to confirm if your cycles are really irregular. I mean, I the the I would have a definition of irregular. So my definition of an irregular cycle is a cycle that is greater that you have cycle fluctuations of greater than about eight days from cycle to cycle. So for example, you know, you have a cycle and it's 27 days and then you have a cycle and it's like 45 days and then you have a cycle and it's like 52 days and then you have a cycle and it's like 36 days. So your cycle is really wildly kind of fluctuating more than eight days from cycle to cycle or you have fewer than let's say, you know, six, seven cycles a year. So a lot of women might think, oh, my cycles are irregular if I had a 27 day cycle and then I had a 32 day cycle. Well, that's within normal Uh, range. And that's within normal fluctuation. So the first thing I had asked is like, are your cycles really irregular? Mm. So that if they are actually irregular, um, so the reason that you could still use fertility awareness, let's say if you wanted to use it for birth control or to try to get pregnant, you can still track if they're irregular. It would help you to understand what's really going on. So when your cycle is irregular and it's fluctuating quite a bit, what is fluctuating is when ovulation is happening in the cycle. So in a long cycle, ovulation is happening later. And in a short cycle, ovulation is happening earlier. So we can divide the cycle into two main phases, you know, pre-ovulatory, so before ovulation and post-ovulatory. And it's the pre-ovulatory phase that is most highly susceptible to change, fluctuation, stress, um, health conditions, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, that can be really helpful. If you're trying to get pregnant, for example, and you just didn't know, and you're having sex on day 14, but your cycle is like 52 days long, Mm. um, then knowing this can give you at least a chance of getting that timing right, because you'd be looking for your cervical fluid, you could be tracking your temperature. And so you would know when you actually ovulated. And if your cycle is 52 days, um, then ovulation would likely be happening if you have a normal luteal phase on like day 40. Got it. And so that gives you a chance of actually sorting it out. But one other thing I'll say, 52-day cycles are not normal. So I think charting could be really helpful to, to kind of confirm that there's something wrong and can be the motivation to sort that out. So if the cycle's 52 days, there's an issue that needs to be addressed. And when you address that issue, it's gonna, the cycle's going to get back down to normal range eventually. And is it normal for women who are breastfeeding to have all of these ranges? <laughs> because that's my other really hot question is, I'm still breastfeeding, I'm sort of weaning, and my cycles are so long, can I still track? <laughs> um, well, I mean, that's a great question. So this gets into kind of postpartum uh, charting and, and how that all works. So it is it is absolutely possible to track your cycles postpartum. Uh and but there's different ways to do it depending on the woman, depending on what her cycles are are doing, and also depending on what phase that you're in. So when I talk about postpartum charting, I, I divide it into two distinct phases. So phase one is when you have just had your baby and and you haven't started ovulating, you haven't had a period yet. Uh, and so essentially, phase one is one really long 
pre-ovulatory phase. You could look at it like that. And so if you're wanting to chart your cycles, especially if you've never charted before, it's a really good idea to work with somebody because it's a different kind of charting. When you're charting in that phase, in the one long pre-ovulatory phase, the temperature does not help you because the temperature only rises after you've ovulated. If you're trying to avoid pregnancy, you're going to need to be looking for your cervical fluid and you're going to need to make sure that you can actually accurately interpret what you're seeing so that you can identify the difference between your fertile days and your infertile days pre-ovulatory and so that you can know when your ovulation is happening, when your mucus is returning, so that you can know uh, when to avoid sex so that you don't have a baby, you know, uh, before you want to. (laughs) Um, And then the second half, so when you actually ovulate, so when you start ovulating and then you start having your period again, um, this can happen differently for different women. So certainly breastfeeding uh, is one of the biggest, it, 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 it actually is the biggest factor here. So Uh, If you're still breastfeeding, that can certainly continue to affect your cycle. And then to what degree depends on a lot of different factors. It depends on how much you're breastfeeding, uh, how much the baby is suckling, how, uh, you know, how and also your kind of individual differences. Um, Mm -hmm. Is the baby sleeping through the night? Uh, You know, like there's so many, it's kind of like the frequency and duration of breastfeeding is is really going to make a difference. So to answer your question, I'm kind of uh, jumping around a little bit. But when you when your period returns, and you enter into what I would call like phase two postpartum, so you've started ovulating again, your cycles can still potentially be um, a bit irregular. And if you're still breastfeeding, for example, if your baby is teething, sick, staying up all night. You know, if you're, when I was uh, in that phase, uh, you know, by the time, I don't know, maybe it was by the time I had baby number two, like, uh, I, I would just be so tired in the middle of the night. So I would just pull, if, if baby woke up, just pull him into bed and just lay there and let, let him kind of nurse all night on my side. That was my favorite. Because it's a great, like, you're feeding a child in your sleep. Like, this is really productive <laughs> stuff. Fantastic. And so, so if that happens a lot and you've got this long duration, all that, certainly that can suppress ovulation a bit. So even though your cycles have returned, if you have kind of like uptick, then it can really delay those cycles and, and kind of shift it a little bit. But again, everybody is different. Everyone is not the same. And breastfeeding is one factor. So, you know, if if you and I were having a more in-depth conversation about this, I would be asking you all kinds of questions. I'd want to know how old is your baby? Is Are you supplementing with formula? Like kind of just to get a sense of like, okay, so how much are you actually breastfeeding? Has there been a change recently? Is this, you know, is the change in breastfeeding related to something, you know, and is this, does this coincide with the cycle that you had kind of really irregular? So hopefully even just going through that a little bit gives the listeners a sense of like, okay, there's all these factors. And so you would kind of pay attention to that. Now, if nothing's really changing, but your cycles are just super irregular, right? Like if the breastfeeding is pretty consistent, like there's nothing really different. If you're, you know, you know, all, you know, I think you know what I mean, then yeah. you would then want to look outside because there are other factors uh, that can be affecting the, how much the other, let me rephrase that, but like other factors that would, could also be affecting the, the cycle and if it's irregular or not. Yeah. Like hypothalamic amenorrhea. Well, yeah. And I mean, if you, for women who potentially did have cycle issues before. Yeah. So if before your cycle would kind of go away for periods of time because of something like that. So hypothalamic amenorrhea is characterized by under eating, 
uh, over exercise and stress. And so if you find yourself, you know, postpartum and it's like two, your baby's two and a half and you still don't have your period. Well, it's probably not because you're in postpartum Mm -hmm. because your baby started eating solid foods probably around six months. And so there's a limit to what we can attribute to breastfeeding at that point. I, yeah, I think it's important to note that it's normal. I think a lot of women get a little bit antsy with like getting their periods regular when they're breastfeeding. And I did a lot of research on it and getting your period back postpartum, like 12 months postpartum is actually the typical like over 50 percent of women typically get will get their period back after 12 months postpartum. So somewhere between that 12 month postpartum and 24 month postpartum range. So if you're, you know, your kid's 16 months old and you're cycles are irregular and you're still waking up in the middle of the night um, feeding, I think it's definitely within the range of normal. It's not anything to be super anxious about. And you still, like you said, to your point, you can still track and figure out, am I ovulating and when is that ovulation happening? And can I pick up on any sort of notes of, oh, wow, this is a really stressful week or, oh, wow, I nursed more. You know, my kid, my kid was teething. And so I nursed a lot more and therefore, um, think got a little bit more regular or my ovulation was way later, you know, pushed way back. And to that point, I, I, I see this, these questions a lot, which is like, I have a really short cycle. What does it mean? I have a really long cycle. What does it mean? So are there any specific root causes that you can speak to that would make that the cycle very short or very long, knowing what we know that it's the ovulation that's shifting? I mean, is, I think we can assume one of the main causes is stress. But, you know, once somebody has that information, oh, my my cycle, it's it's short or oh, my cycle's long and my ovulation is it's because of where I'm ovulating. Does does that mean is there any common root causes of that? And like, where should people look first? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few things I suppose to unpack there. And one is that, you know, anybody can have one random cycle that is shorter or longer. And it doesn't mean necessarily anything serious. So if your cycles are pretty consistent, and then one cycle, you've got like this kind of 36 day, like, wow, that was pretty long. Usually in a situation like that, where you have kind of a a random one off, there's something that happened, and certainly stress and things like that. So if it's a one off, then, you know, I give everybody one, I'll give everybody one weird cycle where the, you know, you ovulated earlier or later or something like that. Um, What I really think is important to look at are consistent patterns. If there's actually something wrong, it's not just going to happen once randomly and then never happen again. If there's an an actual issue, you're going to see a consistent pattern. And so that's the first distinction that I'd want to make uh, so that we're not kind of freaking out whenever there's a normal blip in the cycle that's related to something that's maybe situational or, or something like that. Um, the other thing I'd want to say is for when a woman says her cycles are really short, I would want more information, you know, like how short is short and is it really a period? So, you know, if you're having bleeding and, you know, you're not really charting, and you didn't really know that you could have bleeding for a couple of days and for it not to be related to an ovulatory event. So I would also want to just verify, like, are those actual ovulatory cycles that are short or is it just bleeding that's happening kind of throughout the cycle? Um, so in terms of shorter cycles, one thing also to know is that as we get older, uh, cycles can actually change in relation to where we are in our reproductive lives. So, uh, you know, what's interesting is when you first start menstruating, there's, you know, a three to five year period post menarche where it's actually pretty normal for the cycles to be a bit longer. So the average cycle length 
for, say, a teenage girl is 45 days during those first three to five uh, years after she's had her menarche. And yeah, during that that time, similar to, I mean, any woman who's listening. So when you uh, started to develop breasts and, and, you know, um, you know, hair and all that kind of stuff in puberty, you didn't wake up with breasts. <laughs> you woke <laughs> up and you had kind of sore breast buds for quite a while. I did quite a while before they actually turned into breasts. And even then, uh, you know, they continued to mature for a couple of years. And so we can think about that in terms of our cycles, because we have this communication that's happening between the hypothalamus, pituitary and ovaries, and it takes a bit of time for that to mature. So then when you get into your kind of robust, mature phase, and of course, if we throw a hormonal contraceptive into that, that can make a difference as well, because then potentially if you take, if you start taking the contraceptive, you know, two months after your menarche, then, you know, you're kind of, are you really allowing yourself to develop or is it potentially stopping that? So, you know, I'm just going to leave that there. But once you've kind of matured out of that initial phase, that's when we get into the adult, you know, cycle uh, average that I talked about of about 29 days. But as we get into the 10 years before menopause, so menopause is a word that refers to the last period that you have. And so menarche, first period, menopause, last period. And so the 10 years leading up to menopause, you know, some people will refer to that as perimenopause or premenopause. But during that phase, it's a natural, normal phase of life where we're kind of winding down. So, you know, we could even take the analogy that I shared for the menstrual cycle of the seasons of the year, right? And uh, put that on our reproductive lives. But uh, yeah, really interesting, right? And I so- didn't. I didn't know any of that. That is really, really insightful. I think even especially as a mom of a girl, I'm like, oh, it's total. Like, I'm sure I would probably be worried about. Oh my gosh, our periods are 45 days apart. What's going on? But that's so insightful. Okay. Yeah, yeah. and it's uh, this information. Um, uh, I talk about this uh, in the fifth vital sign, and I pulled from this study that was done in, I believe, the 40s or the 50s even. So it's an older study. But what was interesting about it is they had, I think it was like a quarter of a million menstrual cycles. So they had measured, uh, you know, a significant number of women who were cycling over a significant period of time and throughout different ages. So they have this incredible data set of women from menarche to menopause to see what, what's actually normal. So that's where this comes from. It's a very fascinating uh, study. But during that 10 years before menopause, everyone doesn't experience it in the same way. But some women will find that, you know, they'll cycle pretty normally. And then towards the two years before their last period, then the cycles will kind of start going, you could say haywire, but like being really long in between like period to period. And you're kind of wondering if this is going to be your last one because you wouldn't know it's your last one until it is, which is is interesting. But some women actually find that as they approach menopause, their cycle length shortens. So, uh, you know, the average length goes from like 29 days, maybe to 25 days. Maybe their cycles are coming every 21 days. And it's uh, when I was looking at the research, it's like your follicles start to develop, you know, before it's almost like they start to develop in the post ovulatory like so they start to develop a little earlier so they're kind of ready a little sooner but uh but anyway so that's one thing just to point out for shorter cycles where it doesn't always mean anything super negative if you're in your late 30s early 40s and you have the occasional like 25 day cycle 24 day cycle 21 day cycle that can be 
you know, mid to late 40s, that can just be like a just the normal kind of winding down and shifting and changing. Um, the longer cycles, I mean, that's a, a bigger conversation because there's a number of different reasons that could cause that. One of the most common reasons, you know, polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, which is characterized by insulin resistance, glucose intolerance, inflammation. And so, uh, you know, in, in most women that have this issue, it's related to metabolic condition that increases their lifetime risk of diabetes. And so uh, understanding that will, for women who actually fall into that spectrum where it's actually related to polycystic ovary syndrome, uh, by normalizing the blood sugar, by dealing with the inflammation, by get, kind of increasing the ins- insulin sensitization, that can really help uh, over time once you figure out what's happening with you to, to, to normalize it. Uh, certainly, there's a number of other reasons. Anything that's causing inflammation, stress in the body, uh, if you're not eating enough food, that can certainly play a role. So basically, you know, anything that's outside of that normal range, uh, it's, it's really helpful to kind of look at the overall picture and see what's going on. And if you're not able to figure that out on your own and it's consistent cycle after cycle, this pattern is not getting better, then I would suggest to reach out for support. Got it. Okay. We're at time, but I have two quick questions that I think are also really important that I got consistently from the community. This one's from Dixie. She says, when I'm barely spotting, am I still counting it as a day on my period in my period tracker? So would you consider spotting to still be menstruation? Well, so if the spotting is happening before the period actually starts, then I would say no. So if you have spotting premenstrual, so premenstrual before your period is actually kind of getting going, I would include that in the previous cycle. Um, But if you have spotting, uh, you know, after your period is done, like finishing up, that would be a judgment call. So a lot of the apps allow you to just categorize it as spotting. And so that's what you could do. Uh, But you it's it's that's a judgment call, like no one's going to come and grade your app. Yeah, (laughs) that's good, too. Happy about that. Um, and I also have this question, and a lot of people said that they have this same this same issue. And this is again about the bleeding or your period. Um, this one was from Sarah. She said, "Often my bleeding will stop, like full sp- stop, no spotting for a full day. I'll assume my period's over, and then later I'll get cramping and have some bright red blood streaking discharge. Uh, is that within the range of normal? Because I do know that sometimes, well, even me personally, you know, you, uh, uh, it'll seem like things have stopped and then there'll still be spotting maybe like a day of nothing. And then all of a sudden the next day you still have some spotting or like and is it, it does it matter whether that spotting is red versus brown? Well, I would say, I mean, ideally, optimally in a in a really healthy cycle, typically you're going to have the period kind of gradually like it's going to start off moderate to heavy and gradually taper off and um, not necessarily stop and start. So, I mean, if it's if it's like within a couple of hours, but if it's like a day or like two days and it's starting again, um, that's certainly outside of the realm of normal. So, you know, I wouldn't freak out or anything. But if you notice that it's a consistent pattern, or if you notice that it stops, and then it's like brown or something like that. Um, You know, I've done a number of podcast episodes about, you know, vaginal steaming. And for some and I know it's a, you know, for 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 some, it's a controversial topic, because, uh, you know, there's, it's a practice that has a lot of ancient roots, something that women, uh, there's so many countries all over the world where this is a standard practice, particularly postpartum. Uh, so there's a, if this is the first time you're hearing it, there's certainly a lot to know about it. 
the first time I heard about it, I was like, what is this? I, I remember hearing Gwyneth Paltrow saying something about this years ago. Yeah. And I was like, what? We're supposed to steam our vaginas now. But it, it turns out that it's not some cosmetic, you know, it's actually a, 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 um, a very kind of non-invasive therapeutic practice that uh, really supports women uh, with their menstrual cycles in, in a variety of different ways, in ways that our medical system can't help us. So if you have brown spotting um, consistently before or after, and it looks kind of like oxidized, like kind of like grainy, like I think any anyone who's had a period would know what I'm, I mean by that. Like you look at it and you're like, I don't know if this is right. Yeah. <laughs> um, that type of thing, I've had a lot of uh, clients have a lot of success with it. So um, depending on what it is, but if it's something more concerning, more serious, uh, if you're having you know, it, your period stops and then you have like bleeding in the middle of your cycle and then you got like bleeding a couple days later. Uh, it's when you have a regular bleeding that's really consistent and concerning, it is a good idea to go to your doctor and you may have to kind of force the issue, but certainly ask for an ultrasound, a transvaginal and, the, you know, on the top, uh, make sure that they really check you out to make sure everything's all right. Uh, because sometimes there are some cases where irregular bleeding um you know, is indicative of an actual serious, uh, can, you know, issue. And so you just want to do your due diligence, make sure mm -hmm. everything's good. Got it. I will say when I switched to the menstrual cup postpartum, um, from tampons, it changed my flow a lot, like for the better. I have a much cleaner start and finish. Whereas before it was more inconsistent. And I don't know if, if you've seen that or heard that before, but I do feel like somehow having a cup versus a tampon has really changed it for me. Well, I remember hearing a long time ago, because I've used menstrual cups for like as long as I've been journeying, yeah. two decades. But uh, I remember hearing that the menstrual cup exerts like a slight suction. And so it can, um, some women might find that their period's like slightly shorter because it's kind of more efficient. Uh, so I don't know. I've, I haven't seen any studies on that, but I don't know that I can verify surprise, it. Surprise, surprise. Uh, certainly on an anecdotal basis. Uh, yeah, I would say that you're not alone in that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lisa. This was so informative. And please tell us where we can find more about you because I know everybody listening has so many more questions and you definitely have the answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. You asked awesome questions and thank you for your community who sent in so many great questions. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. Um, so you can find me if this topic really interested you and you want to hear more, you're ready to go down the rabbit hole. Uh, the podcast is Fertility Friday and you can just search Fertility Friday in your favorite podcast player and you'll find me. I've been podcasting for about six years. And so there's a lot of episodes there. Um, <laughs> rabbit hole, you know, is, is awaiting. And uh, all of the things that we talked about, well, a little less on the postpartum side. I didn't talk a ton about postpartum in the fifth vital sign, but um, everything we talked about with, you know, regards to charting, went into tons of information about the birth control pill and coming off of it and preparing for pregnancy, all that kind of stuff is in the fifth vital sign. And so um, you can find more information, the fifth vital sign book com and get the first chapter for free if you want to dive in. Yes, I will link to both the fifth vital sign, the book and um, the fifth vital sign, the workbook that you have that goes along with that. Um, I'll link to both of those in the show notes, as well as Lisa's website and her podcast. But you're already listening to this podcast. So just go ahead and hit pause and go and search Fertility Friday and just go ahead and subscribe. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. And I would love to have you back because I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure we could dive into a lot more topics, but thank you so much for your time. 
Oh, thanks again for having me. For more from me, you can go to coconutsandcuttables.com. Make sure to go to Facebook and find our Facebook group. It's called Well-Fed Women Holistic Health Community. That's where I pull for all of these awesome questions. And you guys have been providing me with really awesome questions. So thank you so much for your participation. We will talk to you next week. 